Hey guys, welcome to Creeped Out, the podcast with the self-explanatory name. I'm your host, Alicia. Before we get started on today's episode, I just want to give you a heads up that I'll be talking about something that pertains to the updates of the podcast, but that'll be at the end of the episode. That's boring and we want the good stuff. So keep on listening or skip ahead if you're more interested in that than the actual podcast. That's it's, it's your choice. This story is one that's always stuck with me. There's nothing paranormal about it, it's definitely more true crime, but there's just something so fucking weird about it that's always been in the back of my mind. It's one of those stories that could have a very simple answer, just surrounded by weird situations, or really does involve something sinister. We are chatting about the possible disappearance of the Sodder children. Sources are our good friend Wikipedia, Smithsonian, BuzzFeed Unsolved, actually, bless them, and I even creeped Reddit a bit just for opinions and other ideas. The Sauter family consisted of parents George and Jenny Sauter, both Italian immigrants, and their ten children ranging from ages 23 to 2 during the time the event took place in 1945. The children's names, going from oldest to youngest, are John, Joe, Marion, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, Betty, and Sylvia. George Sauter immigrated to America from Italy when he was a young teenager. After living in the States for a while, working on the railroads, and eventually starting his own trucking company, he married Jenny, a woman who also immigrated from Italy in her childhood. They moved to a nice house just west of Fayetteville, West Virginia. It's worth noting that Fayetteville had a large population of Italian immigrants, and that George had very strong opinions about Mussolini, the Italian dictator. He was very much in opposition towards Mussolini, and that created some friction between George and some members of the Italian community, despite his general standing of being well-respected. In October 1945, after Mussolini had been executed, George made his feelings known about the dictator to a life insurance salesman. Well, the salesman got a little salty over George's, quote, dirty remarks, and informed him that his house would go up in smoke and his children were going to be destroyed. It's a little extreme. Fast forward a bit. A gentleman looking for work informed George that the fuse boxes that they had around the back of the house would surely cause a fire. The Sodders weren't worried. They had just installed an electric stove, which required the house to be rewired. The local electric company deemed the fuse boxes to be safe, and the Sodders just carried on with their lives. A few weeks before Christmas, the oldest sons had noticed a strange car parked along the road, and the occupants were watching the youngest of the Sodder children return home from school. That's just a bit of background. Now, let's talk about the event. Please keep in mind that even though this family had ten children, only nine of the ten children were in the house at this time. Okay, it's Christmas Eve, 1945, and everything is going smoothly. Martha, Jenny, and Betty, three of the younger daughters, asked their mother if they could stay up past their usual bedtime as Marion, the eldest daughter, surprised them with toys from her job. George, John, and George Jr. were already asleep at 10 p.m., but the mother, who is also named Jenny, mind you, agreed that the rest of the kids could stay awake as long as the chores were completed before they went to bed. Jenny then took Sylvia, the two-year-old daughter, upstairs to put her to bed and then went to bed herself. At 12.30, the phone rang. Jenny woke up to answer it, and the woman on the other line asked for someone who was not one of the Sauter family members. There was background chatter as well as the clinking of glasses, and, when Jenny informed the lady that she had the wrong number, the lady laughed what Jenny described as a weird laugh. 
Shrugging it off as a wrong number, Jenny started to return to bed, but she noticed that the curtains were left open and the lights were still on. These two things were typically done by the time the children went to bed, but after seeing that Marion had fallen asleep on the couch downstairs, Jenny just figured that the other kids must have went upstairs to their bedrooms in the attic. Maybe Marion had chosen to stay up later and fell asleep on the couch by accident. No big deal. Jenny went back to bed and was woken up around 1 o'clock when it sounded like something had hit the house's roof. The object rolled down off of the roof and, after not hearing anything else, Jenny yet again just went back to sleep. At about 1.30, Jenny woke up once more to the smell of smoke. George's office was on fire, and it looked like the fire was surrounding mainly the telephone line and fuse box. George and Jenny, as well as Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., were able to get out of the house. Because the house had a timber frame, the fire spread very quickly, and it blocked the stairs leading up to the attic. The family tried to yell up to the other children, but had to leave lest they get caught in the flames themselves. It sounds like they did attempt to call the fire department at some point from within the house, but found that the phone was broken. Marion also tried to call the fire department from a neighbor's place, and a passing motorist tried to reach them as well using a tavern's phone. Neither could get through until either the neighbor or the motorist got to a working phone in the center of town. Due to the war, the fire department was already running on a skeleton crew. No one was able to show up until later that morning, long after the house was turned to ashes. During the fire, however, George and his two sons tried to get to the other children. They were going to use the ladder that was always along the side of the house, but they found that the ladder had been missing. They then tried to bring one of the business trucks to the side of the house to use it to climb up to the attic. The truck wouldn't start, despite working fine the day before. So they tried the second truck. Same issue. George was eventually able to scramble up the side of the house and smash the window, but it was too late. The attic was consumed by the fire, and all they could do was wait. When the fire department did arrive, the most they could do was look through the ashes. They found no remains. Despite the fact that no remains were found, it was concluded that the five remaining children, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, had perished in the fire. Although George was asked to leave the site as it was for a more thorough investigation, Jenny was too stricken by grief. Dirt was bulldozed over the area with the intention of making the land a memorial garden. The fire was ruled as an accident caused by faulty wiring. The Sodders started to put their lives back together, but then said, hold the fuck up. If the fire was caused by an electrical problem, why were the Christmas lights on during the early stages of the fire when the electricity should have been shot? This just led into more and more questions and more and more discoveries. I'm going to break these down, providing possible explanations at the same time, if there are any. First is the ladder. The ladder that was always against the side of their house was found tossed down an embankment. Close enough that someone could have easily walked it there, but far enough that it couldn't have just fallen down by itself. Next, the phone. The strange phone call did turn out to be a wrong number. I wanted to mention it during the story and at this part, because it was originally thought that maybe the person who called was connected to the fire. She wasn't, it was just another weird event. However, that wasn't the only thing with the phones. A telephone repairman informed the family that the phone line was found to be cut and not burned through like they had originally thought. It is mentioned that a man who had been stealing a block and tackle around the time of the fire did cut the phone line thinking that it was a power line. 
He claimed that he had nothing to do with the fire, but there's been no record of him being identified, nor is it explained why he was willing to climb 14 feet to cut a power line if he was only after the block and tackle. The trucks. Both trucks, despite working fine the day before, would not start, and the family feared that they had been tampered with. It's been suggested that maybe in their panic, the family had flooded the engines. It's also mentioned that maybe the vehicles couldn't start because of the temperature, seeing as it was December. First, I find it kind of hard to believe that a family who runs a trucking company wouldn't know that they flooded the engines. I can definitely see them doing it as they're freaking out, but I think they would immediately be able to recognize what they did. As for the weather, well, I've never been to West Virginia, but if the weather history is correct about Fayetteville's temperature, then it was only about minus 4 degrees Celsius. You probably want your vehicle to warm up a bit, but I don't think it's enough to completely stop it from starting. Now, the remains. Jenny compared her house fire to that of another's family in a newspaper clipping, where they found the remains of the seven people who died. She resorted to burning animal bones to see if she can get any to burn down to ash, but she had no luck. And, of course, as we discussed in the spontaneous human combustion episode, after talking with a crematorium employee, Jenny discovered that it was nearly impossible for no remains to be found. And that's because the fire did not burn hot enough, nor long enough, to resort a human body to ash. If the fire left some of the kitchen appliances still intact, remains would have definitely been found. Although the search was described as cursory at best, this still led the family to believe that maybe the children were in fact alive. And finally, a witness. In 1946, a bus driver came forward to say that he had seen people throwing what he called balls of fire at a house as he passed through Fayetteville on Christmas Eve. Coincidentally, Sylvia found a small, ball-like object in the bushes that George said looked like some form of incendiary device. As mentioned earlier, Jenny had heard something hit the roof and roll off of it approximately 30 minutes before the fire. There are even sightings of the children. On the night of the fire, a woman claimed that she saw the children in the back seat of a passing car as she watched the house burn. Another woman said she served the children breakfast at a rest stop the next morning. A third woman claimed to have seen the children roughly a week later at her hotel. She said that the children had come in with two Italian men and two Italian women and, when she spoke to the children, the men got very upset with her. They left the hotel early the next day. George once even drove to New York after seeing a photo of a girl in a magazine who resembled Betty. He drove all the way to the school, but was denied when he demanded to see her. It gets more fucking intense, dudes. C.C. Tinsley, a private investigator, was hired by the family to find out more information because, by now, nothing was adding up. Tinsley discovered that the same salesman who uttered the threats about George's house fucking burning was on the jury that ruled the fire an accident. Through rumors, Tinsley also found that Chief F.J. Morris of the fire department did actually find remains, bone fragments and internal organs, but he chose not to tell the family. Morris allegedly found a heart, which he sealed away in a metal box and buried it. A local minister, ever diligent in not spilling his confessions, confirmed the story with George. Tinsley and George both confronted Morris, who showed them where he buried the heart. They dug up the area, and sure enough, there was a metal box, and sure enough, there was something in it. That something, as it turns out, was beef liver, never exposed to any fire as per a funeral director. 
It's thought that Morris planted the box so the Sodders would be satisfied with what they had found and accept that their children had died in the fire. In 1949, George was able to get pathologist Oscar Hunter on board as they excavated the site. Bone fragments were found, but when sent to Marshall T. Newman at the Smithsonian Institute, it was discovered that the fragments were confirmed to be vertebrae from one person between the ages of 16 and 17. The oldest missing child was Maurice, who was 14, and even though it was possible for his bones to have matured enough to match the vertebrae, the bones had no exposure to fire. Not only that, it's again fucking weird that they would only find the bones of one of the children. In 1950, this investigation attracted attention. After two hearings, however, the case was deemed hopeless and closed out. And even though the FBI thought that this could be a possible kidnapping, they dropped the case after two years when they had no substantial leads. The Sodders still continued their search. George, Jenny, and the remaining children, minus John, who just wished his family would accept that his siblings died in the fire, all aided in the search. Flyers were printed and a billboard was put up. George followed up with every lead personally, all to no avail. They received a postcard in 1967 with Lewis Sauter written on the back, as well as a photo that strongly resembled what Lewis might have looked like as an adult. But the private investigator they hired to look into wherever this came from never got back to them and they could never reach him again. Just a note from the Wikipedia page that broke my heart, they enlarged the photo and put it on their fireplace. Alright, so by now, you probably guessed that there's no happy ending or resolution. George passed away in 1969, and Jenny passed away in 1989. She still tended to the garden up until she died. As of 2015, Sylvia was the only remaining child. She still believed her siblings survived and still did everything she could to aid in the search. I personally think something shifty did go on here. There's mention of the Sicilian Mafia, and I don't quite know if I'd go that far, but I don't think the children died in the fire. I know that the search of the ashes were very rushed, but for them to find nothing just raises a huge red flag for me. There were five bodies left in that house, and they found nothing? I can't even imagine what it would be like to dedicate the rest of your life to this search. I completely respect John's reasoning for wanting his family to move on with their lives. Having to live with that stress day in and day out would just be an absolute fucking nightmare. But what do you do when there's even the smallest chance that your children are still alive somewhere? I don't think any parent would give up, no matter how small that window is. As I said in the beginning, maybe the story does have a simple answer and it's just surrounded by strange circumstances. But maybe something way more malicious happened. Would you as a parent be willing to take that gamble? I'll let you guys draw your own conclusions, but I'm with the family on this one. Something fucking screwy went down, and I hope someday there can be an answer. Alright, so that's it for the Sodder children, and now we're on to the updates. I give mega props to podcasters who can pump out an episode each week. I have no idea how people do it, and I clearly am not one of them. I love doing the podcast. I love researching, the recording, the tedious editing... All of it makes me really happy, and I find it really rewarding, even though I'm just still a little guy in the grand scheme of things. But for how short these episodes are, I'm finding that I put a lot of time into each one, which, in addition to a full-time job, does take away from other aspects of my life. Before I blather on too long, and because I want to keep this short and sweet, Creeped Out is not ending. Instead, I decided to break my show down into quote-unquote seasons. 
These will most likely be 10 regular episodes and two Final Girls ones. This will just give me a break between the seasons to recharge, gather more stories and fun ideas, and I guess ultimately do the other things I enjoy in life. Now, I'll still be posting during the break. It's kind of like how last time I did an episode for Halloween and Christmas, but it's just not going to be on a set schedule. With all that being said, this episode is the 20th one for Crito, which means after I drop a Final Girls episode in two weeks, season two will be officially complete. I'll still be around on social media, Instagram more than Facebook probably, and of course my email is still kicking around. I'm looking into Twitter too, but that platform is just so fucking weird to me and I don't understand it, so we'll see. I'll still be in touch with updates of course, so follow, follow, follow on social media if you want to know. Or just subscribe to the podcast and it'll be a nice little surprise when my dumbass appears with a new episode. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact me at creepedoppodcast at gmail.com. And follow on Facebook and Instagram at Crypto Podcast. If you like what I do, want to hear more of what I do, and want me to do more of it, like, follow, subscribe, do whatever you do on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you so much for tuning in. Keep creepy, and I will see you next time. Fuck up my recording, bitch.